HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. I have to take a moment today to do a little shameless self-promotion. Uh, as some of you who listen to the show regularly may know, I wrote a book called Vinegar Revival. came out last fall, and uh, I've, been, I've gotten a lot of good press recently, and so I just wanted to give a thank you and a shout-out. The New York Post had me. Uh, in a photo last week for an article about vinegar. I was in the New York Times today in a really great article uh, that talks about, uh, you know, how to how to make vinegar. Uh, another host here on the network, Michael Harlan Turkel, who also wrote a book about vinegar called Acid Trip, is also featured in that article. So Heritage Radio is getting kind of a big, we have a lot of, uh, a lot of people in the Times today, I guess. And uh, I was on Action Bronson's television show, uh, the Action Bronson Untitled show last night. Uh, you can find that on Viceland. Uh, Layla Ali, Muhammad Ali's daughter, who's a boxer, also just wrote a great book. Uh, she was on there too. Uh, some other fun stuff. So check that out. Today is episode 96 of Feast Your Ears, and I'm really pleased to have Dan Delaney here uh, from Delaney Chicken and the much-loved but sadly now closed Delaney Barbecue, uh, mm-hmm. which used to be here in Williamsburg. Thanks, Dan, for joining me. Thanks for having me. So uh, I'm going to cut right to the chase. You're from New Jersey. Why barbecue? Well, you know, I think that when you think about barbecue as southern food, then that's a real question. But if you think about it as <laughs> if you think about it as American food ways, like it's just like one of many long standing traditions, uh, then then there's more of a of like a corollary. And that's how I think about it. Like when I was a kid, um I lived in North Jersey and we would take this little boat that we lived on a river in the Hackensack river. We'd take the little boat down the river and we'd tie up behind this like legendary burger place called the white manna. 
Oh, I know the white mana. Yeah. There's two of them, there's, right? There's, there were originally four. There's two okay. now. Yeah. Uh, spelled differently, too. Uh, but we would go to the one in Hackensack, and that was, like, I think my earliest introduction to just sort of this, like, uh, just, just like, like a classic institutional restaurant. Sure. Right? Sure. The, these sort of, like, indelible family-owned businesses that stand the test of time and kind of are, are really well-known for one thing. And I've been attracted to that for a long time. Um, so when I was down uh, spending time in Texas uh, and, and all through the South, really, I was always gravitating towards the same thing, but right. but the regional version of that. And sure. so when in Texas, that was very much barbecue. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you make a you make a great point. I mean, I, I love white manna and I love places like you're describing. Mm-hmm. Right. And in the South, I mean, uh, I have not been to very many of those in Texas, but I was just recently in Atlanta. Um, I went to Daddy D's barbecue in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I went to Fat Matt's barbecue in Atlanta and they very much are that. They don't do avocado toast in the morning. Mm-hmm. They don't do espresso drinks. They do brisket. They do pulled chicken. They do pulled pork. Mm-hmm. You can get the same essentially sides at each of them. Yep. And that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And there's no, you know, there's no changing around of that menu. Yeah. As I, re- I really like that. I mean, when I if I make a pie char- chart of like the type of restaurants that I go to, these like sort of institutional, family owned, specialty restaurants makes up at least, I mean at least fifty percent of where I go. Yeah. If well, not and more. And I and I think that you know I mean the other side. So I, I find that as like an interesting reaction as someone who like being from North Jersey. I mean I grew up in the tri-state area, where I feel like the Greek diner is like the ubiquitous dining experience yeah. where you have a menu that's like 73 pages long sure. and they can make 900 different things because that's meant to serve everybody yeah. right it's meant so you can go there with 12 people and one person wants breakfast and one person wants meatloaf and mashed potatoes and one person wants a salad and someone else wants disco fries right like you can get all of that in that location and so i feel like that's an interesting you know maybe that's a reaction against that for you being from jersey no, I mean I, I I cherish the diner. I love the diner so much, and and, it, and it, to I'm me, I'm not trying to talk bad about the diner. No, I mean it tucks neatly into the same kind of thing. I mean, ultimately, what we're saying is it's like it's celebrating these like family-owned businesses that are that are that have been fortunate enough to be around for a while. Yeah, and that's I mean whether it's a diner or it's a you know little family-owned bakery or whatever that that is a through line in I think what I really enjoy with with food and i mean and and also there's like a little eccentricity like people that own a hot dog place in the middle of you know kenny bunk and then just like do this one i mean there's there's something insane about this like they they obsessed about their chili or their whatever and it's always fun to be around people that are that are obsessive about something. Sure. I mean, you mentioned Maine, you know, uh, there, there used to be, it's now gone a wonderful place in Freeport, Maine called Cindy's that was run by a man named Bob Pottle and his wife, Frida, who were family became family friends of mine because we would go there mm-hmm. and we stopped there two or three times a year going to and from Maine and, you know, fried clams. Yeah. Like that exactly. was Bob's thing. Fried yeah. clams and chowder were like the two specialties that he made. And it was the kind of place where, and I assume the same thing would be true at White Manor or at the, you know, the places you're talking about where, you know, if something's a little off, they're not going to serve it. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas mm-hmm. we think of a place like, like at the diner, if the fries are a little overcooked, right. Right. they're just going to put them on the plate. Yeah, like they don't really yeah. care. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's also that, right. You're talking about there's that care mm-hmm. about this one singular product. So barbecue, you went to Texas 
you became obsessed with brisket, right? Am I am I recounting the story relatively correctly? Yeah, I mean, I I became really fascinated by the culture of barbecue, like these beautiful restaurants that have been open for decades that have these like have like patina on the walls, and then they haven't changed anything in years. And I liked I like barbecue actually. I don't. It's not my favorite food to eat at all, um, but. I mostly enjoy the all of the like cultural ephemera around barbecue. Sure. The like grizzly old guy that's like feeding the fire, the 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 really like sort of stubborn and and ingrained technique for how they're making what they make. Mm-hmm. And how everybody thinks that their way is the best way. I mean there's something really right. beautiful about that. And they're all kind of great. Yeah. I mean like, and they are. And they are. Yeah. <laughs> um and when I when it was time to when I decided that I wanted to do that, originally it was because when I was down in Texas, I had tried the barbecue at Louis Miller Barbecue, and uh, actually it was it wasn't even te- I tried it when they were in Louisiana. Jane and Michael Stern brought me into their one of their festivals, and I got introduced to them through that. And I remember trying that piece of, and it was just like God, like I never tried, I never had that growing up. I never put that kind of like amazingly rendered beef in my mouth before that was like wild and i remember then coming back up to new york and just like wanting to figure out how to do that and that set me on a journey of buying ultimately like pretty crappy smokers from the home depot and like you know one after another slightly edging toward a larger and larger smoker and then eventually getting my hands on one in austin and bringing it up here and uh, but I mean, there was no, like when I finally went, was in Texas and got my hands on a smoker and brought it up th- at that point, there was still no idea that I was going to open a restaurant. It was just this idea of that, that I wanted to learn how to make this. And you want to be making it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I just and then to- you, I mean, and then you did what I think was really interesting. I mean, I think people get obsessed with these things and they're like, all right, I'm going to open a restaurant. I mean, barbecue in and of itself. And this could be a whole separate conversation about how difficult traditional barbecue is to do in new york city mm-hmm. given the department of health rules around sure. cooking inside outside and etc um, but i think the way that you formed that business or started it was really interesting and very smart to really look at what is there a market for this i mean you started out essentially throwing barbecue parties yeah so- and you pre-sold tickets so people could come to a place i remember going to one in greenpoint uh-huh. um, and you know it was just in like an empty lot next to a building and everybody had to buy a ticket ahead of time and they'd show up and you had music and beer and you handed your ticket and you got some barbecue and you like hung out. And, you know, and, and that I feel like was a really smart way to test your market. Because if that had failed, right, if only 10 people had showed up every time, I doubt you would have opened a restaurant. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was a combination of some marketing ability, like some ability to, to generate interest. Uh, and you're right. It was. I mean, and, and I think that part of it is that we are now, is, and, and increasingly every day, in in a space where, because of of the democratization of of food media, because it's because everybody has an Instagram, and uh, and in a sense now, you know, platforms like Eater are competing with Instagram, uh, uh, you know, authors yeah. or or photographers, or whatever. whatever. Uh, there's a there's a much more rapid pace to to food media. I think that even institutional platforms like the New York Times are informed by it. I mean, you look at if you look historically at like how I mean, we're in Roberta's right now. It was years before they got a review in the Times. Yeah, 
it's true. Today, that cycle is very small. I mean, people right. are, are there's reviews coming out of, of restaurants after I mean, they're open for a few months. People in the dining room right now who are probably reviewing it essentially, as you point yeah, out, yeah. by writing stuff in Instagram. So if we looked at the geotag for Roberta's, there's probably a hundred photos from the last week that have a couple paragraphs written about their experience. Right. And so, I, I mean, I think that people become very critical very quickly of mm-hmm. restaurants now. So when I started Brisket Lab, the part of the thinking was like, how do I operate in a space that's pretty competitive and give myself the permission to make mistakes, yeah. the, per- the permission to figure it out. Yeah. And, and ultimately by formulating this event series and, or party series, we're going to call it and doing it under the sort of uh, label of a laboratory environment. It gave us the permission to make mistakes and to sort of not be criticized for it. Yeah. But that was, I mean, that was, and that was, I think, pretty strategic. It was saying like, okay, we're, and, and we also had no permits. We, I mean, it was completely sure. illegal. We were just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, this was a, a, a rogue venture. Um, and so, I'll, I mean, a lot of it was just the, bi- it, it was just trying to find uh, a way to move forward without the infrastructure that we really needed. Yeah. And I, but I think you also hit on something. I mean, I think you really tapped a vein of people who wanted barbecue that was cooked that way in New York. And I have to imagine, I mean, I went to, I think two of those events and I, I have to imagine there were a lot of repeat customers who then probably became regulars once you opened a brick and mortar. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was actually, I mean, uh, yes. And it was also interesting to see the relationship that, you know, those guests had with the business as we then transitioned into a brick and mortar store because they, uh, they felt a real sense of ownership you know, they, they really felt connected to the brand and to the business because in a sense they, they, and rightly so helped to make it happen. Right. Uh, which is, I mean, the, the sort of loyalty and engagement that we had for that restaurant was just like, it was wild. It was really high. Um, and that you opened in 2012. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just at the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah. And then you closed it last year in 2017. At the very beginning of the year. Yeah. Got it. Um, And that was due to, uh, as I understand it, a lot of the sort of normal pressures on businesses in New York, real estate, costs of operation. It's a a combination of a lot of things. I mean, the the business never really worked well as, I mean, the food was great. The ambience was great. But there there were things that were done incorrectly from the start, which was basically just like the cost of us physically operating there never correlated with the number of chairs that we had in the restaurant. And just, these are, these are basic things that having never had built a restaurant before, I didn't know. Yeah. And so there was, and, and we ultimately always stayed afloat because we were doing a lot of catering business and, and right. things like that. But, um, the, the, like nail on the coffin was when the building that we were in got sold, uh, to a development group that were, that had the plan on leveling it to build a condo. Actually, I drove by there five minutes ago. And now, I mean, it's completely gone. Oh, the, really? The I haven't been down that block yeah. in a long time. Yeah. So that was, I mean, that was it. But it, it was, in a, a certain sense, uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and and I guess in a certain, you know, it was it was a little bit of a blessing in disguise because I, while I loved what we were doing at the barbecue place, it pushed me into another arena, which has ultimately been um, equally rewarding and and rewarding in a different way. Yeah. So yeah. so let's talk about that. I mean, so what you're what you're alluding to is Delaney Chicken. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, I, I feel like it again in in the model that we talked about at the opening of the show of this kind of singular food restaurant, um, it's a fried chicken. 
right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the focus is really fried chicken sandwiches, but you can also get regular fried chicken as well. Is that correct? At this point, it's just sandwiches. Just sandwiches. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. It's so a really small menu. It's we have three different types of sandwiches, bags of chips, and and some that's great drinks and lemonade. Yeah, I yeah. think that's I think that's really smart. And so that you you currently have a location open, and that's in Vanderbilt. Uh, market, yeah, Vanderbilt. right. So it's right across from Grand Central on Forty yep. Fifth and Vanderbilt. Yeah, yep. um, and you were you were one of the original tenants in that space, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was interesting about the design of that business is that I had learned I I, I was so battle scarred from trying to run the barbecue business because what what I think a lot of people never understood or it was not clear is that. We never were cooking rest, our food in the restaurant in, Bris, in at Brisingham. You had to move it all around. We, right? we built a commissary kitchen in Bushwick, and uh, and so we were kind of like a commissary business, a, a logistics company to yeah. like shuttle things around, and <laughs> right. a restaurant. Right. And that and and that put a lot of pressure on the infrastructure uh, uh, on the team. It was a hard thing to to pull off. And so when I went into building the chicken place, I was really um, sensitive to not wanting to make those mistakes again. And so articulated the entire process to be able to operate without, uh, I mean, for the first year we did, but eventually to operate without the use of any sort of offsite commissary wow. or production, which is where it is today. So we actually don't even use like back of house facilities or, or anything. The whole, it's all in that stall. The whole business is in the 260 square foot wow. stall. From that's amazing. Prep to receiving to everything. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. And you're, I mean, the last time I was in that space, you guys had a, lo- a long line. So I assume you're putting out a lot of product from that tiny amount of space. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sandwiches per day. Wow. Um, and it's very fit. I mean, having a small menu, having a, the, the way the menu is designed with, with us really using the same core piece of chicken and the same bun and changing things through condiment allows us to be really quick. So in, in ultimately for us at this location, it's all about lunch. Right. And so we have a lot of guests that come through in a short window of time and we have to be able to see that they're getting fed and, and we're usually able to see that people are getting their food in under 30 seconds. Wow. That's, yeah. that's incredibly fast, especially in a high paced place like Midtown. And as you point out, it's lunch, yeah, right? Exactly. And, and, you know, lunch is a very different animal, say, yeah. than dinner um, and very different in that environment where really you're talking about someone standing at a window to get food and then sit in a communal table instead of sitting at a restaurant waiting for a waiter or waitress sure. to come over, pour water, order drinks, then order food. That's a different kind of scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors. Uh, and when I come back, I want to hear about, you know, what's next. Are you mm-hmm. taking on White Mana? <laughs> We'll see. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious stinky Limburger and its long storied history. 
I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sierchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk, fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. And if I go and go alone, will you still rule my heart Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and today I have in the studio with me Dan Delaney from Delaney Chicken. Uh, before the break, we were talking about uh, Dan and and my own love of places that really focus on one type of food or make one kind of thing and do it really well and have been doing it for a long time. I feel like there's also an aspect of the thing I love about those places, and you brought it up, Dan, as being patina. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like you know it, it's also its history. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you go oh, to yeah. a place and you understand that the person behind the counter grew up there and was doing it and learned it from, you know, their their father or mother or aunt or uncle or something like that, that there's, you know, it's the history of that. I think that's really, um, you know, you can create a great place and you did right that made barbecue and it had a certain aesthetic, but it didn't necessarily have that history. Right. And, and I think that that's some I mean, one it's a privilege, right? You feel that being able to go into these places where they are generational. And, uh, like I I was driving back from, I went, I was in Wichita. No, I'm sorry. I was in Wyoming, uh, recently. And I drove there and drove back. And as I drove back, I stopped at this place called, uh, Phillips. It's, or it's a little, it looks like the white manna. Um, and you know, you're sitting next to these guys these that these families that have been going there for years. So, so there's also a privilege that you, you through through the vehicle of, of these like institutional restaurants. You have the you also really get to connect with with locals. But for me, going into like, I think it runs a risk when you're doing something like bringing barbecue up to New York or any of these foods. You start to run this risk of of like becoming a parody. Uh, and you, I think that if you, I mean, and that's fine. A lot of places do that, and they just embrace the idea that they are ultimately a parody and that's what they do. Um, but it is an interesting internal question, which is I'm never, I know that I'm not going to open up an institutional restaurant. That's not going to happen in my lifetime because, uh, it, it, it just, it's, I know that that's not my MO. And so, but I still intend to be opening and operating things in, in the hospitality space. So I have to, I guess, at a certain point, embrace the fact that that's never going to be what I do. It's I can cherish it and love it, but it, but you know, but I think that you have to be sensitive about how much you lean on the idea of nostalgia because you then start to become a parody of, of these yep. other places, and then there's something disingenuous about that. And I think that customers realize that. Sure. Yep. So, uh, so Delaney Chicken, you're looking to expand to your home state. We are looking to expand in general, uh, and we're looking at a lot of different things. The space that we're hoping to get open soon is one in, in North Jersey in the town of Paramus, and it'll be inside of a mall called the Garden State Plaza. Got it. And, uh, and like everything else in Paramus, does that mean it would have to be closed on, on uh, Saturdays? Uh, well, it's Sundays. Or Sundays. And, and the, the blue law in New Jersey is that retail has to be closed on Sundays. So any food service operator could be open on a Sunday. But it's just Paramus, right? It's not the whole state. 
Uh, it's all of Bergen County. All of Bergen County. Okay. Yeah. Because what I remember being a kid is that my, you know, my, my had family, aunts, uncles, cousins, stuff in Jersey. And I remember we would drive out there and like the parking lots on Sunday would be empty when yeah. you drive through Paramus. Mm-hmm. And it was so weird to me sure. because everywhere else in the world, Sunday is a huge shopping day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, we could be open on Sunday. We're, we're, we'll test that and see yeah. how that goes. Yeah. Right. Because there won't be anybody at the mall buying stuff. Yeah. Necessarily. Yeah, but but the the mall that mall has a big, a really large movie theater in it. It has uh-huh. a lot of other amenities that are open on Sundays. Got there it. are restaurants there that are open on Sundays and things like Got that. It. Yeah. Um, and and is is that a much bigger space than what you have in Manhattan? Yeah. So what we have in Manhattan is essentially part of a food hall, yeah. and this is a full, in you know, inline restaurant where we have I don't know something forty five seats inside of it. Uh, so it, it looks much different. It it feels like a you know. A, traditional restaurant that you would go in get food and sit yourself within our within our you know four walls got it yeah um and then is your hope from there where what are your where where are you headed so like in, in five years where do you want delaney chicken to be you know i uh i i learned this statistic and i think i shared this with you the other day which is that like domino's pizza uh 90 of the people that own a domino's franchise started as a as a delivery driver and so as I, and, and that's amazing. That means that they've built the infrastructure to take somebody that has not a, not a tremendous set of skills or they're just starting out in, in this industry and, and help to incubate them and to grow them, to be able to own a business and to yeah. also provide the resources to make that happen. Domino's also, as I understand it, has grown like enormously in the past 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my, I really like that goal. You know, when you're figuring out like how, you know, you want to expand something, there's a lot of ways to do this. A lot of people go through sort of the route of getting private equity kind of financing and open up a lot of corporate stores to eventually be acquired. Um, my love for like legacy brands and legacy restaurants, I think is ultimately going to prevent me from wanting to do that. Yeah. And so the idea of, of trying to expand through a franchising system is something that's really attractive to me. Uh, I've had so many the opportunity of working with so many amazing people um, that like through because of whatever circumstance didn't have all the opportunity that I had in life. And if I could, I mean, really great people working. I mean, it's like just like the, some of the most hardworking people work in hospitality. And so if there's a way to leverage this and to be able to build opportunity for people to become small business owners, I think that's really great. So I, I like that. That's the path that I hope to follow with this. Cool. And, uh, you know, do you have other types of restaurants that you have sort of like workshopped in your mind, like that you've thought about opening? Yeah. I mean, well, number one is I, when we were, I I do hope to revisit barbecue. Yeah. Uh, I think that having the, I mean, the, while it's sort of being, uh, put on ice at this point, there's still what are, there's a lot of great techniques and recipes that we figured out over these five years. And, and I think that they're, uh, I think that when we were open and we were producing our barbecue at, at really our peak, it was some of the best in the country. So I, I do think that that's something that I would like to revisit at some point in the future. Um, there are, you know, but I, and, and I, I'm interested in burgers. It's something that I've been attracted to for a while. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some point, you know, there's that, but I have, uh, I don't have, uh, I don't have 500 chicken places open. So until that happens, right. I think that I need to be focused on it. <laughs> sure. Um, you, you mentioned, uh, I, I had asked, uh, if you could have one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? And you said a Wisconsin butter burger. I don't know what that is. What is a Wisconsin butter burger? Uh, well, I don't, I mean, it, God, it, it was a really hard question, but 
uh, because I know, and we're not going to hold you to yeah, it. Yeah, there's obviously. so many things, but yeah. I I love the the Wisconsin Butter Burger. It's a really cool thing. So there, it's a it's a griddled burger, uh, like white mana, like white also mana, a yeah. Burger. Uh, unlike Burger King, flame, unla- flame broiled, <laughs> and they have a they also toast the bun using sort of more of a dry toasting method as opposed to like a uh, a contact toasting method. Yep. And then they put um, this sort of, these sort of like sautéed onions on top of the, the cheese on the burger, then sautéed onions. And then as they're assembling the burger, they take like a like a, a like a just like a knob of uh, tempered room temperature butter that's salted, and they just smear it over the top of the bun, and you know then crown put that put that crown on on the top of the burger right before it comes to the table. So the steam from the onions and the steam from the the residual heat of the meat sort of permeate up and liquefy the butter and it melts wow. down into itself. I mean, having just had the ad in the middle of the show or the beginning of the show for Wisconsin and right. all the cheese, right? And yeah. we, okay. So then the cheese, the dairy, the butter, Wisconsin's also the first place I ever had frozen custard, mm. which was essentially like frozen ice cream made yeah. from like double cream butter. Yeah. Yeah. So you could have that butter burger and then you could have a frozen custard yeah. and then you could just die. Right. You could, I mean, your heart would just seize up. I think. It would. It would. Uh, yeah. I mean, but I, in general, I think that like as I try and then like it would all. I mean, I, I love pizza. I, I, yeah. I really like these. Cla- I mean, sure. Uh, classic, classic stuff that's yeah. not fussy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, speaking of burgers, have you been to Louis Lunch in New Haven? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting burger. I mean, I, I don't know that I, I. I love it as an institution. I don't know yeah, that it's it my has favorite that thing about yeah, being but, old and having done it the exact same way. So for, for I guess for those that don't know, it's credited as the oldest burger in the country. Yep. And they they cook through a pretty unusual technique, which are these sort of vertical grills where they take the meat and they kind of close it in, a, in into this basket, uh, similar to like how you would cook toast on a campfire and slide that into a vertical toaster, which broils it. Yeah. And it's served They're on gas. Broilers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's served on white bread. That's also toasted with a slice of tomato. I think that that's it. I know. That I think you can get cheese. Oh, you can, yeah, you can, I get think you can get cheese instead of tomato, but there's no other con, there's no yeah. ketchup. There's no other right. condiment. And, um, and it, it and, and this is another great example of the patina. Like it's this, it's kind of built out of all these sort of really hefty woods, the whole place that people have like etched their, their name in. Yep. And so it's like, you know, J- you know, Sarah loves John 1971 <laughs> or, and, and that's great. Like you're, it's like a time machine to be able to step into these places. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that your, uh, one of your favorite books is ham on rye. Yes. Um, and, uh, I was trying to remember. I look, was looking for my copy actually this morning when yeah, I was preparing. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. find it. Um, I mean, what is it about that or about Bukowski that you love? I think that I'm in general. Maybe this is growing up on the East Coast. There's there's like a, a slight attraction to like misery. You sure. know, there's like something attractive about getting things wrong more so than just getting everything right. Yeah. And. Uh, I think that when I go into restaurants and, and other environments, I think about them very theatrically. I think about, you know, the life of the person that's sitting at the counter drinking the cup of coffee and such. And so I think that what what's enjoyable about that book is just the amount of vivid uh, detail that that is shared in his 
pretty rough childhood. It's yeah. visceral. Uh, and I, I but but I, I, I mean, I, and, and there's a, there's a level of, of like very humorous suffering, which is something that is like big in New York, right? We, we like love to laugh at, 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 at like our own misfortune a bit. Uh, and it's absurd that we're all here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and I, and I, I think that he was also just like, uh, I think I'm, I'm also just attracted to things like the diner and the other, and these other institutions and, and whether or not, I mean, it's not a huge part of the book, but I, you know, also like imagine the character outside and, and I imagine that he would sit at the same restaurants that I would want to sit right. at. Sure. Yeah, sure. Um, well, we're just about out of time. Anything else that you want to bring up? Any, any events going on related to Delaney chicken? No, I mean, you guys don't do any like festivals or anything, do you? No, and, and it, it was actually interesting. We 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 also did no press when we opened, which was a very different thing. Like we when we opened the place, we were we basically declined all press interviews, which was interesting because it was a and that was it was a very active thought. Um, but it but it I mean in, in a sense it allowed me to sort of have our developmental period the way that we did with Briskly Lab, which was yeah. before before the you know the droves of people come. It's a way for us to like get the product right. And it wasn't for a while. We had a lot of development to do to make it work. So, uh, but no, no events at this point. It's just like, you know, grinding away, getting this, getting this thing going, building more and more systems. But, um, yeah, I guess the only thing that I'm, I'm one of the things I'm looking forward to is that I I think that in probably the next month or so, I'm going to start to make video content again which I haven't done for years. Yeah, I was going to touch on that, but we're kind of out of time. Uh, You used to produce an online show. Yeah, yeah, about street food. But I've grown to love the entrepreneurial side of of hospitality so much that uh, I'm looking to to start to make video content again about about that, about what it is to to try and grow a business. Because I think it's very interesting. It's kind of like pulling the curtain back on Oz and something that I think most people are fascinated by but really don't have much access to. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, yeah. You can follow along as Dan maybe starts a new online video show or whatever mm-hmm. it's going to be uh, at Daniel Delaney yep. is his social media handle. Uh, and you can check out DanielDelaney.com. And, uh, you know, I hope that everybody will make it over there and either to uh, Manhattan or very soon to Paramus and yeah. uh, eat some fried chicken sandwich. That's actually, I, as we're sitting here talking, I'm getting hungrier and hungrier. And I'm mm-hmm. like, mm, maybe we should have pizza or maybe we should go and maybe I should drive and go get White Manor. Although it's a little bit far from Brooklyn, but thanks for coming on it. the show. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Big thank you to David Tattashore, who engineers this show. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes or Stitcher, and please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on social media at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thank you.